Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, 27th of January, 2024. Long time viewers and listeners to the show know that we featured a number of the books shortlisted on the Financial Times Best Books of the Year last year. And two books I found particularly interesting. Neither of them won the award, but they're both excellent books. And we had great conversations on them. One was called Cobalt Red by Siddharth Kara. The other by Ed Conway called um, Material World. Uh, Conway's book talked about our economy becoming increasingly extractive. We take it for granted that the economy is virtual, but Conway argues that the reverse is true, and we're more and more reliant on minerals from under the earth um, to power our new economy. Um, and the other book, as I said, that I thought was particularly interesting was, was Cobalt Red by Siddharth Kara, how the blood of the Congo powers our lives, and it was a case study, so to speak, in what we called the new heart of darkness, the way in which um, Chinese mineral interests in particular have transformed um, and part of the African economy, the Congolese economy, into a kind of neo-slave 21st century uh, economy. And this theme of the material world and our dependence increasingly on products like cobalt is taken up uh, by my guest today in a new book. It's out next week by Ernest Scheider. He is the critical minerals expert at Reuters. He's based appropriately enough in Houston, Texas, and his new book out, The War Below, Lithium Copper, and the global battle to power our lives is out next week. And Ernest Shader is joining us from Houston, Texas. Uh, Ernest, are you familiar with um, the the Conway book and, and, and the Siddharth Kara book? I assume you are. Yes, yeah, both really great books. And um, Cobalt Red especially, I think, uh, really dove into the complexities of a lot of these supply chains. Cobalt, obviously, as the name implies there, um, so just found both to be really, really strong takes on this core issue um, that we really need to be thinking about uh, as our world goes green. Ernest, as you were telling me before we went live, you uh, joined Reuters as their critical mineral guy, you moved to Houston in 2018, and it quickly became apparent to you on your new beat that um, that these new these new products, these minerals like lithium and copper were powering uh, the global economy. Do you have any particular moments where you suddenly realized the light bulb, so to speak, went off? So I'd have to say that it, it, it happened over time. The more I reported on proposed mining projects across the United States and the world, the more I got to speak to folks for and against the projects, as well as policymakers and other regulators. And I started to see a lot of this tension points, uh, a lot of the same tension points across different proposed mines. Whether you might have indigenous rights groups or conservation groups opposing a mine, 
Um, or you might have a huge rampant interest for the cobalt or copper or lithium or nickel that that mine would produce. And so the more that I reported on specific mine projects across the world, I started to see a narrative thread emerge. And it really occurred to me that this is a great topic to tie together for a book, because what the book really aims to do is um, connect all of that um, uh, all of those stories into into uh, into a cohesive narrative that shows the reader that the stark choices our world faces as increasingly every single device is powered by electronics. And so we need to be thinking about where we get the metals and minerals from that power our lives. Of course, the 19th century industrial revolution was driven literally, of course, and metaphorically by coal. So this isn't a new development. How does this new minimal mineral revolution how does it differ from the coal revolution of the 19th century is in some ways it's rather similar i mean i think you're you do start to see the the contours can be similar there um certainly huge industrialization growth uh powered by a raw material so you see parallels there um the differences i would say certainly are the impact on the broader environment coal um, obviously has starker impacts on the environment than, um, than say, producing electricity or, or sort of other electronic-linked devices. But, but both, to your point, Andrew, are linked to natural resource extraction. Um, and we know certainly the dangers of uh, coal and what it does to a broader environment. And so what I really hope to bring folks here with the war below is, is the human toll or a picture of the human toll here and sort of what are the tough choices facing our world as we hope to go green because the um, the way that we mine these metals and minerals has to be different than the way we mined coal, as you say, during the Industrial Revolution. And are there good ways to mine? Are there bad ways to mine? Are there some places where we shouldn't mine? Are there some places we just accept that there will be mining? We're not having those conversations right now. And I really hope that the book sparks those conversations. I mean, for me, the main theme, the main question that I'm bringing is what are the choices we are willing to make as a world if we want all of these electronic devices. It's not just about electric cars, it's about cell phones and solar panels and wind turbines and millions of other battery powered devices that we use every single day. And we don't think about where all the metals that make those products come from. Do they come from cobalt, uh, cobalt mines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo where seven-year-olds extract the cobalt? And if so, are we willing to build a cobalt mine in the United States? We're not having those discussions right now and I think we should be having them. Yeah, they're painful discussions because, of course, they shatter what, what some people might see as a, as a complacent attitude that yeah. if you buy a Tesla or, or some other EV, you're doing the world a great service. But uh, as Siddharth Karas shows in Cobalt Red, you're actually powering literally and metaphorically a, a neo-slave economy. You, you talked about the Democratic Republic of Congo. The Kara book, Cobalt Red, focuses exclusively on that, how the blood of the Congo powers our lives. Is this a, a uniquely dark vision, uh, sort of Joseph Conrad in the 21st mm -hmm. century, a new heart of darkness? Or, or are there many other places like the Democratic Republic of Congo where we see the appearance of a new kind of slave economy? Well, I, I um, certainly the starkest example I would say is 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 certainly the DRC or the Congo. Um, and when we think about seven-year-olds there that could be maimed or killed by producing that, that that obviously centers the mind. 
Um, I think that there are broader questions in the Western world about buying or um, extracting metals and minerals from places in the world that might not share what are considered in the United States and other Western nations to be um, commonly accepted ESG or environmental, social, and government standards. So beyond child labor, there's issues of water usage, there's issues of waste storage and waste maintenance, um, there's issues of um, respect for forests and other areas. You know, for instance, Indonesia, world's largest, um, has the world's largest nickel supply. Rainforests are routinely chopped down to extract nickel. That probably would not fly in the United States uh, for various reasons. Um, so we we do start to see that there are different standards across the world for how we produce for how metals and minerals are produced. And so my question to the audience here in the war below is: Are there places where we're willing to produce them here at home? So those standards, are, so we can make sure that these metals and minerals are ethically produced. For instance, I, I look at the proposed Twin Metals Project in northern Minnesota which would be an underground mine that would produce copper, cobalt, and nickel. So yes, cobalt there. And the problem though, is that deposit lies underneath a watershed that feeds the Great Lakes. And the rock or the, the rock that contains that metal, when it is exposed to water, it turns to acid. So you can imagine this is an underground deposit. When you take the rock out of ground and you're near a watershed, the potential there to interact with water is certainly high never mind when it rains. Um, and so there's huge concerns that if this mine is developed, that acid could seep into the waterways and it would then pollute the Great Lakes, which is sort of the beating heart of the North American waterway infrastructure. Uh, and so there's, therein lies the tension. And so I chronicle the journey of this proposed project going back all the way to the 1950s to the present day. And I look at folks for and against it. And the many of the supporters point out the Congo specifically, and they say, why are we buying cobalt from the Congo where we know that there are extremely low social and safety standards for producing cobalt when we could produce it here in the United States? And I should say that the company that would like to develop this, this project in Minnesota is saying it can produce the cobalt and copper and nickel safely and believes that it could not uh, damage the waterways. The conservationists on the other side say that that risk is too great, that we should not be doing it in Minnesota. There's a huge tension point there, and I don't know what the right answers are, but what I do know is that Americans and many consumers in the Western world are not thinking through these right now, these issues right now, and I hope they will after they read the war below. What about the argument, Ernest, that some people made, even a critique of books like Cobalt Red and Your Own, that it's all very well environmentalists or liberals, progressives in the West criticizing this neo-slave economy, but no one's forcing anyone to go in the mines of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And if they didn't, then uh, th then the people there would have no work at all. Uh, are we, are we um, punishing developing nations uh, in a way that um, is convenient morally for us, but not for them? Well, I mean, I think certainly by buying the cobalt in the supply chain, we are encouraging the very low safety standards that permeate a lot of those operations in that country. So, I mean, I think, you know, nobody would accept that in the United States, the United Kingdom or else in other Western nations. So we as consumers, should we expect it in other countries? You know, I mean, I think a great analog might be the textile industry. Uh, we've seen in Bangladesh, certainly that um, Nike and others 
um, have uh, been using factories there to produce goods that are worn by many in the Western world. But the safety standards, the safety standards in many of the factories there have been atrocious. Um, and there have been multiple um, instances uh, where workers have been injured. Um, I believe there was a fire a few years ago at a factory in Bangladesh. And many people, especially people that wore Nike clothes said, no, that's not, that's not enough for us. Um, and so I think you can see, start to see the same analog in the minerals industry. You know, I mean, I don't, anyone should accept that it's okay for a seven-year-old to risk death to get cobalt that goes into a cell phone. Um, and so I think that would not fly in the Western world. And so as consumers, should we accept that in another country? Um, so I think these are the sorts of things that we you know, start to think through here. Um, there are ways to help the, the, the economy, certainly of many, many countries across the world. I mean, uh, the Congo has, Democratic Republic of the Congo has some of the world's largest supplies of tons of critical minerals and metals, not to mention crude oil and other petroleum-based products. So there is a huge economic potential there, certainly, uh, for the country. And, and I would, you know, we don't, and I would say that um, there are also ways to safely produce it here in the United States as well. So therein lies the tension that I'm trying to explore with the book. Yeah, in a way, it sort of, it's it's the reverse of the, the image of Waconia, an African country, yeah. rich in resources and, and wealthy in every other uh, sense. There's a great deal of sensitivity, Ernest, also to the kinds of factories producing the devices that run our world, particularly smartphones. We've done shows on factories, supposed sort of neo-slave labor factories in China, in Shenzhen. Um, is, the, is, is that equivalent, particularly in the way in which uh, these minerals are being put into these smart devices? Well, the um, I, what I will say is that China has spent the past 30, 40, 50 years, really cornering huge swaths of the entire critical mineral supply chain. And that's not just on the extraction, so not just putting a shovel on the ground, but also on the midstream and the processing. And this gets extremely important when we think about how technical and how specific a lot of these metals and minerals need to be processed to in order to go into things like an electric vehicle battery. Depending on the manufacturer, you might have a specialized type of lithium known as lithium hydroxide, or lithium carbonate. And they're either can do um, different things depending on what you need. And so um, in order to process both of those, in order to get to, in order to process those though, you need to have very specialized um, processing facilities and specialized equipment. And many of those facilities right now are in China. And partly that is because China is a massive manufacturer and the world's largest EV market. So it's used that to its advantage. Um, that's a huge strategic hole for the European Union and the United States and other regions of the world that are trying to catch up with China. Um, but that is definitely part of the story here as well. And you started to see with the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law here in the United States, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act attempts by government to sort of abrogate that prowess that China has in this midstream refining space. Um, we'll start to see over the next few years how that shakes out. Um, but that is also another huge glaring hole here right now. And just think about the, you can control the mines, but you know if you also control the midstream, then you control two parts of that supply chain, two key parts, and that just further cements your power. I want to come back to China after the break, but I want to remind everyone that uh, this high quality kind of conversation, or what I hope is high quality conversation, is brought to us by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. I don't think there are many minerals used in its production. 
and uh, rely on uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo labor or economy to produce it. It's mostly an intellectual production. We're going to run a short feature on liberties, and then we'll be back with Ernest Scheider, uh, the uh, critical minerals correspondent at Reuters and the author of The War Below, to talk more about the, the new Cold War and between the U.S. and China and how this fits into his narrative. So don't go away, anyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas, it's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Ernest Scheider, the author of The War Below, a book about the new economics and politics of rare minerals, which are powering the devices that power our lives. Ernest, before the break, you were talking about China. One of the headlines today is that apparently Donald Trump if he's elected, is preparing for a massive new trade war with China. Before the break, you noted that China has strategically been trying, I guess, to corner the market in, in these rare minerals. How do you see the issues you write about in the war below playing out in the new Cold War between the U.S. and China? Well, I mean, whoever controls the copper and lithium and nickel and cobalt industries will control the economy of the 21st century. That's just no other way around it. The way that crude oil was, and natural gas powered the 20th century economy, these critical minerals will power this century's economy. And I think that is extremely uh, well known in Washington, as well as Beijing, Brussels and elsewhere. The various governments are trying to catch up with China, which has a multi-decade head start um, because it had seen the um, it had seen this coming and it really strategically started to move its industries into that. One area I point out is the area of rare earths, which are 17 minor metals and minerals uh, you can find on the periodic table. And um, their name is sort of a misnomer. They're not actually rare. What's rare is to find them in really large quantities. And these are things that are um, have various different applications in electronics and weaponry, um, but they're used in fighter jets made by Lockheed Martin. They're used in laser-guided missiles. Um, a common, ad, uh, common application is in your cell phone. The thing that makes your cell phone vibrate um, is a rare earth that's put into a magnet that actually vibrates. So rare earth magnets turn power into motion. In an electric vehicle, a rare earth magnet can be thought of as the motor up because it takes the power from the battery and then it transfers that into motion, which goes to the tire. And at about the 1980s, 1990s, China started to see a strategic um, interest in growing its rare earth industry. It was uh, blessed by having a large rare earth deposit in Inner Mongolia um, that was commingled with um, a steel deposit, or iron ore deposit, excuse me. And so it's been able to grow that industry. At the same time, the United States, which basically helped create the modern rare earths industry after World War II and the Manhattan Project, um, started to uh, focus less and less on this space, partly because it can be pretty nasty to make rare earths. You have, in some cases, radioactive waste. 
Um, it's a very intense process to produce and process rare earths. It can take several weeks at a time. Um, and so the, the interest in the United States decreased in these rare earths while they increased in China. And so where we are today is that China is the world's largest miner and producer and processor of these rare earths that go into so many devices, like I just mentioned. So you can't have a US military without rare earths. You can't have a cell phone without rare earths. You can't have an electric vehicle without rare earths. And there's only one rare earth mine right now in the United States, and it's trying to be able to refine or process those rare earths um, by slowly turning on some equipment that they have on site. Um, but right now, China still remains the largest. And that's because it thought strategically over a multi-decade span. And I go in detail into the history of that in the war below, um, including how the Mountain Pass mine in California, the only U.S. rare earth mine, um, was actually sort of saved out of bankruptcy and help by a Chinese partnered consortium. So, uh, I, I, Ernest, you're a very careful reporter. You work for Reuters, one of the, the, the top agencies. But I'm sensing beneath all the details, beneath all your careful research, there's a rather sharp politics. Are you suggesting that America needs to tighten up to be more aggressive, that the war below is... Uh, is viewed as a war in, in Beijing, but perhaps not in D.C., and you'd like Americans to become a little bit more aggressive, American policymakers at least, in, in terms of relationships and attitudes to countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which, as Siddharth Kara noted when I talked to him last year, um, is essentially being colonized by China. Hmm. What, I, what I am suggesting is that we need to have a more unified approach. Uh, and by we, I mean um, countries that are not China. So if you're in Brussels or you're in Washington, what I saw over and over while reporting this book is a disjointed approach by various arms of various governments. So one arm might be working at odds to what the other arm is doing. So no government is speaking with a unified approach here. Uh, take the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Washington. The Inflation Reduction Act allows for EV tax credits, which is a huge boon to the domestic mining industry, because to get the EV tax credit, you need to have a certain percentage uh, made of that electric vehicle with metals that are extracted from the United States or from countries with free trade deals with the United States. But there's only one country on the African continent that has a U.S. free trade deal, and that's Morocco. That's not Zambia. That's not the Democratic Republic of the Congo. That's not any of the other countries on the African continent that are rich in metals and minerals. That's a strategic hole right there. And so what we have seen, to your point, is China move in rather rapidly into the DRC and invest heavily in a lot of the mines. In fact, I chronicle in the book how, the, um, how Chinese companies bought from a U.S. company the largest cobalt and copper mine in the Democratic Republic of the Congo because um, that U.S. company was... Uh, in desperate financial straits. And so they basically sold out to the Chinese uh, and the U.S. government let it happen. But that's the nature, some people might say, Ernest, of globalization. The markets work. If Chinese companies uh, have more capital resources or, or more interest in Africa, then, that, then that's the nature of things. Uh, some people would it, it argue be, that but American... The coronavirus pandemic taught us one thing. It's that long supply chains aren't going to work all the time. I mean, we learned four years ago this month that the United States made no masks. So where did we find ourselves? We find ourselves, crap, where do we get masks? 
And that's just one tiny example. So I, I would argue that, you know, we're, we've learned from the, the coronavirus pandemic that globalization isn't this cure-all all the time. You're based in Houston, Texas, rather than Beijing, China. But is there, you, you, you noted that over the last half century, the Chinese have had a, a strategy here. Is this a very tight political strategy? Um, does it all fit together in terms of Chinese policymakers? Or is it also a little bit disjointed? Well, I mean, certainly, um, it, you know, it's, um, from the outside, it, we, we do tend to see a lot of strategic steps um, by Beijing and by other officials in China to look at their strategic industries and invest heavily there, um, regardless of the cost. Um, I would point out Belt and Road, the, the Belt and Road Initiative um, that was launched a few years ago that, that clearly was intended to invest Chinese money more heavily in the African continent and elsewhere um, around the world. Um, so that's that's one very specific example, I would say. Um, the Mountain Pass mine that I mentioned earlier, I mean, a Chinese uh, company helped restart that mine, helped save it out of bankruptcy. That was a strategic decision. And that one that helped that mine um, get to the state where it is today. Um, so there does seem to be a very um, uh, coordinated approach. You know, I mean, the Chinese government has a five-year plan that, that's updated um, on a regular basis, that such a plan does not exist in, in the United States. To your and, point uh, there, and, and is unlikely. I mean, American government, for better or worse, doesn't operate on five-year plans. Right, right. Is there a long-term strategy, though, in your sense, in Beijing to corner the market in these rare metals and essentially control this new networked economy? I mean, I think you just have to look at the actions taken by the Chinese government the past 20 or 30 years. And I think the answer is yes. I mean, these metals and minerals are used as economic weapons already by the Chinese government. A great example is in 2010, um, a, a Chinese fishing vessel had a spat with a Japanese Coast Guard vessel. Uh, and the Chinese government reacted by barring the export of rare earths to Japan. And so if you're a Japanese manufacturer, that's a huge problem. Um, and so, as you would imagine, that had shockwaves throughout the entire economy that got noticed in Washington. And yet here we are 14 years later, there really hasn't been a huge push to sort of deal with the fact that at any moment, Beijing could cut off the export of rare earths to the United States. And so that means there, that means, you know, that a huge impact on the American economy right now. We're seeing it on um, some other minor metals um, right now, like gallium and germanium. Um, and could that grow and expand further? Um, these are questions I think we need to be thinking through a lot more, and we're not thinking through them now. The next flashpoint, of course, in, uh, in the geostrategic struggle between the U.S. and China is Taiwan. The year before last, Chris Miller's chip war won, um, won their book of the year. How does this play out, Ernest, both in terms of powering computer chips themselves, the, the, these, these rare metals, and also in a potential war or certainly a crisis uh, over Taiwan? Well, I mean, uh, semiconductors certainly made with a, with a lot of silicone, so sort of different materials there. But I, I think certainly any conflict with Taiwan would further expose the very long supply chain for critical minerals that exist right now and further reinforce the need to be producing more of these metals and minerals here 
domestically. You know, just take an average lithium ion battery today and think through the crazy supply chains. You know, maybe um, the lithium is extracted from northern Chile, which is one of the biggest producing regions in the world. And then it's shipped to the coast and then it's um, shipped across the Pacific Ocean to some part of Asia, um, maybe China, maybe Japan, where it's processed and then put into a cathode that's put into a battery and into a battery pack. And then that battery pack, you know, might be shipped back across the Pacific Ocean, uh, perhaps to Tesla's Gigafactory, and then it gets put into a car that's shipped to somebody in, say, Florida. That's just a really, really crazy long route. And if the goal is to decarbon energy, and if the goal is to have energy independence, or at least strive for that, um, you can imagine how a major conflict in East Asia through with Taiwan or somebody else would have huge implications on that supply chain. So for me, what I explore a lot in the war below is, are there ways to produce more of these metals and minerals closer to home? And what would that have, what benefits would that have in terms of not only the environment, but also the economy? The US economy, if not the global economy. Um, Reuters, uh, and, and you're not alone in this, reported on, um, the alarm bells sounding, and I'm quoting the Reuters piece from uh, October of last year on the slowing demand for electronic vehicles. Uh, everybody knows that the vehicle sales are, are slowing. There was an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal earlier this month about EVs losing momentum in the US at least. How does this play out? Uh, you're based in Houston, the, one of the, the centers of the US oil industry. H how will now, or how do you view the playing out of all these rare mineral, this war over rare minerals with the decline in traditional fossil fuels, but also the losing momentum for the electronic vehicle revolution, which I think most people would agree is, or practically everyone would agree, is good for the environment? Sure. I mean, I think when you look at that, um bit of context here, just in terms of the raw numbers, um, electric vehicle um, penetration is continues to jump. So it will jump this year over last year. It's just not growing as fast as people had initially expected. So, so that's sort of just one initial point that I would make. Um, and, and the second point I would make is this is so much more than electric vehicles. And when we think about this energy transition, um, transportation certainly is a huge part of the transition, um, but so are the millions of other battery power devices that define our everyday lives. I have a chapter in the book that looks after uh, leaf blowers, which sounds sort of innocuous and basic, but a few years ago, I got a backyard of my own and was thinking through, okay, well, how am I gonna care for this? So I decided to go all in and go all electric and I got an electric lawnmower and an electric weed whacker and yes, an electric leaf blower. And as I was writing this book, that took me down this giant rabbit hole of, okay, where did the lithium and the copper and the nickel and the cobalt come from inside that battery for this leaf blower? And uh, Andrew, I got to tell you, like, I, I got a lot of resources I can pull as a, as a reporter in this space. I couldn't figure out where it came from. I couldn't figure out if the lithium had come from northern Chile, like I was just talking about and taking that really long route. I couldn't figure out if a seven-year-old in the Congo um, extracted the cobalt that went into that battery, I couldn't find out any of this information. And that's just for a leaf blower that I use in my backyard. You know, think about cell phones and laptops and many, many other devices that we use every single day that are powered by these lithium ion batteries that are built with critical minerals. And so it's, to me, it's so much more than the EV industry. That is obviously a huge growth area. 
but there's just millions and millions of other devices out there. So I, I would just give a little bit of context there. And, and that's why I, I broadened the book to go beyond electric vehicles and to look at a lot of these consumer electronics that are powering and defining our lives. Finally, Ernest, uh, you seem to be making the argument both in this conversation in the book that uh, there are ways to revise policies that benefits the U.S. economy. What about the argument in the Congo that the, the Democratic Republic of Congo could build a kind of Waconia if it was more aggressive in controlling price and distribution of these rare minerals. Might this revolution be an opportunity for uh, African economies, so, so quote unquote, developing African economies like the Democratic Republic of Congo to actually enter the 21st century, throw out not just the Chinese, but the Americans as well? Well, I, I think certainly, um... As I was saying earlier, whoever controls these metals and minerals will control the 21st century economy. And I think um, Zambia, the DRC, many other resource rich nations have a huge leg up there and have certainly a huge seat at the table, given that prowess. Um, and I think we're starting to see governments, especially on the African continent, um, recognize that power. And so, uh, you know, a great example is some of the uh, Chinese company contracts to operate in the DRC uh, are being renegotiated by uh, the government um, for for multiple reasons, not the least of which is that um, they were seen as potentially unfavorable to the DRC and overly favorable uh, to China when they had been initially signed. Um, and and so I think we're going to start to see more and more of of, of that happen um, because the the need is going to be really really stark here. I mean, think of Saudi Arabia's prowess because of its control of certain crude oil supplies. Um, you can sort of imagine a scenario where um, countries with massive copper and cobalt supplies 50 years from now potentially could be in the same space. Um, and one of the things I explore in the book certainly is um, the, just the sharp need for copper. Just, to, you know, it's the cornerstone metal for this electrification. You can't have any electronic device without copper. It's in wiring, it's in batteries, it's in so many other things. Um, and some analysts have pointed out the um, huge fight over whether we should build copper mines in some parts of the world could lead to a shortage that could actually fuel wars. You know, people, wars have been fought in the 20th century over crude oil. Are wars going to be fought in the 21st century over copper? I mean, it sounds sort of mind-boggling to think about, but but it points to the sheer need for these new materials as our entire economy shifts from a petroleum-based one to a materials-based one.